One of the games that the kids and I used to love to play, especially when they were younger, was hide-and-seek, right? And when you play hide-and-seek, you think the point of the game is to hide so well that no one can ever find you. But in reality, what's the point of hiding so well that no one ever finds you? You're just sitting in a dark closet waiting 10, 20 minutes later. You're so clever, but no one's looking for you anymore, right? The point of hide-and-go-seek is to actually be found. The truth is, we love to be found, right? The cruelest thing you could ever do would be to leave a kid sitting in the dark and not go after them, right? We want to be found, we long to be found, and what makes us squeal with joy, what makes us burst out in laughter and excitement is the moment when the one who is looking for you finds you. The entire story of the Bible, the entire message of the Bible is that human beings have run from God and hid from God and are sitting separated from God in the dark. And if you are far away from God, there might be even a part of your soul that wonders if God even notices that you're missing. And moreover, if God would even care to still look for you, to seek you, to want to find you. In fact, what the Bible says is that we human beings, we're lost. That's how the Bible describes us. Meaning if you're not a Christian, if you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, if you haven't trusted in him, received him as Lord, the Bible would describe you as lost. So if you're a person of a different faith or a different worldview, the Bible would look you in the face and call you lost. Now when you hear that, I can imagine how insulting that could sound. But it's not meant to be insulting. In fact, I almost want you to consider that when we describe something as lost to us, it's because that thing is valuable to us. It's precious to us. It's meaningful to us. For example, I have no idea where my middle school report cards are. But I would never describe that as being lost to me. You know why? Because I couldn't care less where my middle school report cards are. I'm not looking for them. I'm not seeking them. If I found them, it wouldn't mean anything to me. You're not going to see me put a poster on a telephone pole, missing report cards, reward if found, right? Because it does not matter to me. You do that when that which is lost to you matters to you. And God is saying that he describes those who are separated from him as being lost to him, as being valuable to him, as being precious to him, that he's seeking them, that he longs for them, that he wants to find them. And the good news of the gospel, the central message of the Bible, is that God diligently seeks those who are lost and rejoices greatly when they are found. That's what you'll see in the passage we're looking at today. So if you've got your Bible, look at Luke 15. And when you get to Luke 15, you're going to see, just scanning down the page, that Jesus tells three parables or three stories, which in fact are really one parable and one long extended teaching. Now, if you want to know why he tells these three parables, you actually have to start one verse before chapter 15. At the end of chapter 14, here's what's happening. The background is Jesus has just finished talking about the cost of being his disciple. He's essentially set this high bar and he's told the people, if you're going to follow me, you essentially have to sign over your life to me. That's what he says. Here's your life. You sign the deed of your life over and you say, Jesus is Lord. He calls the shots in my life, not me anymore. When he says this is right, I believe it's right. When he says this is wrong, I now embrace that that's wrong. He is Lord and I'm done. And Jesus has just said, if you're not ready to renounce your life like that, you can't be my disciple. And then finishing that teaching where he talks about salt, and if it's not salty, it loses its flavor and its usefulness, he finally finishes his section by saying, he who has ears, let him hear. 
That's 14.35. He who has ears, let him hear. And then 15.1 begins, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. Did you hear that? He ends the section on being a disciple and the cost of following him and what it takes. And he who has ears, let him hear. And 15.1 starts, now the tax collectors and the sinners were drawing near to hear him. And when you put the two together like that, you begin to see what Luke is doing. Luke has just finished by saying, Jesus said, let him who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now the tax collectors and the sinners were drawing near to hear. You see what Luke's doing? Luke is saying there were, in fact, some people who had ears to hear what Jesus said. There were, in fact, some people who wanted to be his followers, who were ready to jump over the high bar to be his disciples. But it's not the people you would have expected. In fact, the people who drew near, who had ears to hear him, were tax collectors and sinners. Tax collectors were hated in their day, and it's not because everyone hates taxes or hates the IRS. It's, it's because the tax collectors, the closest I can think of is, you know that feeling you get when you hear that an American has been found associated with ISIS? That turns your stomach because you go, how could one of ours be with one of them? A tax collector was a Jewish man who was in bed with the Roman Empire. He was collecting money to support the Roman army. His work was feeding the Roman militia. I mean, this was the very Roman Empire that had its neck on the boot, the, its boot on the neck of the Jewish people, and the tax collectors were funding their work. Tax collectors and sinners. Not as in the sense of, you know, everybody sins, everyone's a sinner. No, these were notorious for their sin. They were marked in the community as being sinners. Everybody knew about their sin. Not everybody knows about your sin, but with these people, everybody knew about their sin. They were marked as sinners. You see what Luke is saying? People came to Jesus, but it's not the people you'd expect. It's the bottom of the barrel people, the scum of society people. It's the bad apples and the rotten apples. It's the ones who come from bad families, who have spoiled their name and soiled their reputation, that have brought shame to their families, that have skeletons hiding in their closets, that are being talked about by people and talked about on social media for all the wrong reasons. It's the moral failures, it's the misfits, it's the rejects, it's the outcasts, it's the losers. It's the one that everybody knows they're fair game to talk about because they're that disgusting. Those are the people that Luke says are drawing near to Jesus to hear him. Now just a note for you. If you can, in the honesty of your own heart, see yourself with that bunch. If you consider yourself a sinner. If you know what it's like to wear shame, to bear guilt, in the honest parts of your soul to dread the thought of being seen by God or by others, if you know what that's like, you need to know that as holy as Jesus was, you would have liked being around Jesus and that Jesus would have liked being around you because that's what Luke is saying. Here are a bunch of people that are nothing like Jesus, and yet they liked being around Jesus, and Jesus liked being around them. It raises the question then, so then where are the people you would expect? Where are the Bible believers, the rule keepers, the moral, the respectable, the religious, the straight-laced, the decent, the dignified? Where are the ones who are upright in society, who wear their heads high and walk with no problem? Where are they? 
And Luke will tell you, they were there too, but they weren't drawing near to Jesus like the tax collectors and sinners were. They were standing sort of distant, arms folded, disgusted. Verse 2 says, And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. You see, they were horrified because the Pharisees and the scribes knew better. They knew to keep their distance from sinners. They knew better than to associate with those kinds of people. They had already unfriended them on Facebook and blocked them on social media. They had jumped on blogs to talk to everyone about how horrible they were and what should happen to them for their egregious sins. They were very vocal about these kinds of people and what they deserved and who they were and how no one should be associated with them. You see what Luke's doing? Luke is presenting at the beginning of chapter 15 two groups of people. Those that we would label as good people and those that we would label as bad people and the good people are wondering why Jesus is hanging with the bad people. Why he's associating with them. Why he's welcoming them. Why he's accepting them. Why he's eating with them. And so, verse 3, Jesus tells them this parable, right? And catch the so there. The so is important, meaning because of this. Because of what? Because the tax collectors and the sinners were drawing near to hear him, yes, but also because the Pharisees and the scribes had just grumbled about Jesus eating with sinners. So, for that reason, because of that, Jesus told them this parable. In one breath, Jesus tells three parables. He tells a parable about a lost sheep, a lost coin, and then with the third and final parable, he sort of ratchets it up and takes it up a notch. Here's the first two, the lost sheep and the lost coin. Here's how the parable goes. The parable goes that there's a shepherd who has a hundred sheep and one is lost. And that shepherd then does what any good shepherd in that day would have done. He leaves the 99 in open country, somewhere safe, probably hands those sheep over to someone who will watch for them. And then his priority is to now go and look for the one that's lost. And so he'll go up the mountains and down into the valleys and through the ravines, and he is looking for this one lost sheep. Now, you and I might not understand that because we're so far removed and we're not shepherds, and so we don't get that. If I had 100 sheep, and 99 of them were there, and one went missing, I'd shrug my shoulders and go, that happens, right? I still got 99 here, but not so. If you lost your wedding ring, you wouldn't suddenly shrug your shoulders and go, I've got other jewelry. No, you would search like crazy till you found it, right? Or I can tell you it's happened to me on more than once. I've been here, and I know it's happened to some of you as well. Your kid is standing next to you one moment, and then you look down the next moment, Micah's not there. Right? I've seen that happen to you as well. And, and what happens? This place is like Chuck E. Cheese. There's a hundred kids running everywhere. And Micah was here one moment, and one, one moment he's not. And can I tell you, with franticness in my face and telling Chinu, and now we start looking, we've never thought to ourselves, we got another one at home. That's all right. Right? No. Why? This isn't just a middle school report card. This is a son. This is a wedding ring. This is a sheep to this shepherd. And so he will leave the 99 and he will look high and he will look low. He will look through the ravines and he'll look through everywhere until he finds them. And Jesus' point is, so is the sinner to 
God. A sinner is not a middle school report card to God. So is the sinner to God, as a wedding ring would be to you, as a son would be to you, as a sheep would be to the shepherd. So is the sinner to God. He will climb the mountains and he'll scale the valleys and he will look through the ravines until he finds those who are lost from him because the lost person matters deeply to God. The one separated and distant from God is a treasure to him and he will not stop until he finds them. And when he found them, verse 5 of chapter 15, when he found it, he lays it on his shoulder rejoicing. I almost am taken by as much of what's not said as what is said. Could you imagine what the shepherd does? He takes this sheep and lays it on his shoulders. Meaning you didn't read, he then beat the sheep. Kicked the sheep, dumb stupid sheep. Right? He, he didn't shame the sheep, didn't punish the sheep. I'll show you we're having lamb chops for dinner tonight. Right? He takes this sheep and puts it on his shoulders. Listen. Don't you, in an honest part of your heart, go, if there is a God up there, I really hope this is what he's like. And Jesus has come to tell you, he is. This is the good news. This is what God is like. It, it, it reminds you of what the prophet Isaiah said of us. All we, like sheep, have gone astray, each of us our own way. But God sent Jesus, who in John 10 said, I am the good shepherd who has come down to lay my life down for the sheep. And this Jesus will search high and low and throughout the ends of the earth for his sheep. And when he finds it, he will carry us on his shoulders rejoicing. Verse 6, and when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying to them, rejoice with me for I have found my sheep that was lost and now he turns and here's the point of the whole story. Verse 7, just so I tell you there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. You hear the good news? God diligently seeks those who are lost and rejoices greatly when they are found. This is the point of the second parable as well. Now it's not a man, it's a woman. And it's not sheep, it's a coin. There's a woman, she has 10 silver coins. A silver coin was one day's wages. So she's got 10 days worth of wages saved up in her house and she loses one. So what does she do? She does what any good housekeeper, homemaker would do. Verse 8 says she lights a lamp and she sweeps the house and she seeks diligently until she finds it. Can you picture her? She looks under the couch and throws open the cushions and lifts the chair and sweeps the house and checks every crack and every corner and every crevice looking for this coin. And verse 9, and when she found it, same thing, parallel, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, here's the point, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Friends, is this how you picture God? I'm not asking even what your theology is, because I know you probably have great theology up here. In your heart of hearts, when you think of how God views you, is this how you picture him? A God who celebrates when sinners come home, 
A God who throws a party in the heavens, who unblushingly rejoices in the presence of the angels. A heaven that celebrates when kids come home. A God who rejoices when sinners come to him. You know how you screamed last night around 7.30 p.m.? Right? Any of you that are good. And if you, and if you weren't there screaming, I've already shamed you enough that I'm waiting for you to repent and become an Eagles fan. But do you remember? About 7.30 last night, how you were screaming. I was, I was sitting next to either Daniel or Fred or Dennis. I don't remember which one. It was such pandemonium. I, I don't remember exactly what happened. One of them, I know, climbed on a couch, thought it was WWF, and literally just like jumped, like body surfing, except there was only two of us to catch them. So that kind of rejoicing, right? I, I got a text from Joe Verghese. It was a text video of him and two friends hugging each other and just jumping up and down over and over again, right? Now, I thought to myself, doesn't God do everything bigger and better than us? Like we love, he loves. So when we show mercy, it's a little mercy, he shows incredible mercy. What is it like when God rejoices? And rejoices, you, you think of your purest, happiest moment of rejoicing. What is it when God, who does everything bigger and better and purer than you, rejoices? Times infinity by the infinite one for something infinitely more important. A child of his comes home and heaven rejoices. And God can be seen in the presence of his angels celebrating one child in one corner of the earth coming to him. That you, if you repent of your sins and trust today in Jesus, that heaven itself would throw a party over you coming home. Could you imagine a God that loves you like this? See, here's what Jesus is saying. It does not matter who you are, and it does not matter what you have ever done. There is a father where there's nothing he can't forgive and no one he won't accept. Because the good news is God diligently seeks those who are lost and rejoices greatly when they are found. This is what he wants to communicate in the third and final and most well-known of the three parables as well. He turns now to say the third one, verse 11, there was a man who had two sons. Here's how this parable goes. There's a man who had two sons and the younger one comes. And the younger one basically says this, I keep waiting for you to die, but you won't. And so I don't want to wait anymore. Right? So give me my share of the inheritance now. That's essentially what he says. You know, when you kick the bucket, I know I'm getting a share of what you have, but you won't kick the bucket, and I'm tired of waiting. So give me now what is due. Literally, the word there is, give me the life that is coming to me. Right? Your life, what you have, your living, all of that, I, I want it now. I don't want to wait anymore. And so, you can imagine, any good Middle Eastern father in the culture, context, that side of the world in which Jesus is telling the story, any good Middle Eastern father for whom honor and respect would have meant a great deal. You have this young, disrespectful runt come and tell you, I wish you were dead. You're not dead yet. Give me my share of the inheritance. This boy should have been disowned or worse. And yet you can picture this father going, selling half his property so that he could give this to the boy. And this father lets him have what he wants and lets him go. You imagine Jesus is picturing for you a father, Romans 1, who will see sinners desperate for their sin and say, have it your way, and let them go in their sin. 
And so this boy goes off, the parable says, to a far country, and there, because of what we just finished preaching, essentially he's trying to recreate Ecclesiastes chapter 2. You remember what Solomon did? I looked for pleasure under the sun. And Solomon used all the resources he had to try and find satisfaction under the sun. So here's the boy. He's got a pocket full of cash, and so now he finds wine and women and everything the heart could desire. He held himself back from nothing, trying to find satisfaction under the sun. Because we finished Ecclesiastes, we know where this is going to lead. And so the verse says, he squandered his property in reckless living. And Jesus' parable continues, now he finds himself flat broke, and to make matters worse, famine hits the land. Now the boy's in trouble. He has no money, he has no family, he has no friends, he's in a foreign land, he's bankrupt and broke, and he has no way out. And so, 15, he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. At this point, every hearer would have known this boy has just hit rock bottom. For a Jewish boy to have gone from his country where Yahweh was and the temple was and Yahweh's people were, and now he's in a Gentile land, and now he's probably employed by a Gentile, non-Jew, unclean man, feeding Gentile, unclean pigs, and in the contact of which probably has rendered him now unclean, so he can't go back to the temple, and he's not part of God's family, and he's not in God's nation, and not with God's people, and not with God, and he's completely out on his own, and he's feeding the swine. I mean, nothing kosher about anything of this. This boy has hit rock bottom. And there, sitting in the pigsty, Jesus' parable says, he comes to his senses. He begins to see that the pigs are better off than he is, and he thinks to himself, even his father's hired servants are better off than he is. And so he says to himself, verse 18, I will arise and go to my father. And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. Let me just tell you, by the way, if you want to know what repentance means, if you've come to church at all, you've probably heard that word over and over again. Repent, repent, repentance. Even in this passage, you heard it. There is much joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. What is repentance? It's this. It's coming to your senses and coming to God. That's essentially what repentance is. It's coming to your senses and coming to God. And do you notice how he comes? He has no claims to make, no excuses to give, no resume to present. He simply throws himself at the mercy of God. That's repentance. Did you hear that? He has no claims to make. He doesn't come to his father and say, you know what? At the end of the day, I'm still your son. No. He doesn't have excuses to make. You know, what had happened was there was this, no. And he doesn't present a resume. I know I screwed up here, but back in second grade, remember when I did, no. He has no claims to make, no excuses to make, no resume to present. All he has to give to his father is need. If you would show me mercy and treat me, I know I've spoiled any chance of being your son. Could I just be a hired servant that hangs out in your property? That's repentance. Repentance is you come to God and you have nothing to give him but need. No resume to present, 
no deeds to recount, no lists to show him, no claims to make, no excuses. You come to him and go, my only hope, because I've squandered everything and I've made a mess of my life, my only hope is that you will be good because I wasn't. You will be good because I wasn't. That's my only hope. That's repentance. And so this boy comes to his senses, arises, and goes to his father. And he, you can picture him, can't you, on the way, rehearsing the speech over and over again. Here's what I'm going to say. I'm going to say, Father. And, and how should I say Father? Father, 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 I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm not worthy to be counted your son anymore. Would you treat me as a hired servant? And he repeats it, Father, I'm not worthy to be counted as your son. He's repeating it over and over again. You can see him walking that way back. Verse 20, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. I wonder, those of you who know this story, if you've heard this so many times that the wonder of that just flew by you. Did you hear it again? While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. You can almost imagine and be sure that Jesus' hearers would have probably been shocked by this turn in the story. Remember, other side of the world, different culture, different values. You can imagine that no self-respecting Middle Eastern dad would have ever just done that. You think to yourself, this boy had utterly disrespected him, dishonored him. You can imagine he had even brought shame to the family, shame to the house. I think to myself, you can, you can almost imagine that at some point, some neighbor must have come to this father and said, hey, where's the little one, Jacob? And, and old Jacob has to respond back, he's gone. Where did he go? I have no idea. Or another neighbor coming and hearing that Jacob had sold five acres of his property and coming and going, Jacob, what did you just do? Why would you sell half your land? Don't you have your future to think of? And what are you going to give off to the boys? Why would you do that now? Could you imagine one of them going back to their homes and saying, you know, that Jacob is a fool. I know he loves his boys, but that little runt asked for that. And Jacob sold off five acres of his land, gave him half of everything. Can you imagine how that community would have talked about this old father? And now here's this boy having squandered everything dad owned, dad's livelihood, having wasted it all, and he's coming back. He doesn't even have shoes on his feet, smells like pigs. He's been unclean, untouchable now, and he's walking down. And this Middle Eastern dad in this story, every commentator I read said the same thing. Could you imagine? No Middle Eastern dad would have now picked up his robes, exposed his legs, and ran down the hill like boys run. And this father runs down that hill and embraces this boy and kisses him. In your heart of hearts, don't you wish, even if you don't believe, if there is a God, I really hope he's like this. And Jesus came to show you he is. This is the good news. This is what God is actually like. I thought to myself, it's sort of like, if you want to know what this scene is like, have you ever seen those videos of military people coming home to surprise their families? Last week, Pastor Binu said that I'm pretty stoic. I tell you, even I got choked up watching these videos. In fact, if you feel distant from God or cold about his love, I, I'm going to prescribe to you, go home and Google military families surprising their family. And when you watch these receptions, would you think to yourself, 
Just imagine, allow yourself to imagine, could it be that God would be that emotional about me coming back? Could God love me enough that he would go gushy and be that emotional about me returning home? Could God possibly love us like that? And Jesus has told this story to say that's exactly how God is. God diligently seeks those who are lost and he rejoices greatly when they are found. You can imagine this younger boy starts his speech. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. But the father won't even let him finish his speech. He calls out to his servants and he says, bring the best robe. Maybe that's his own robe in the house to restore this boy back to the family. Put a ring on his hand, put sandals on his feet. He says, go get the fattened calf. We're having steak for dinner tonight, right? Because we have to celebrate. You can even imagine in that day, a fattened calf was probably saved for some special occasion. Maybe it was being saved for one of the boys' weddings. But what could be more special than this? For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Verse 24, and they began to celebrate. This son of mine was dead and he's alive. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. Could you imagine being a tax collector or a sinner in that crowd that day? Because you had no doubt who you were in the story. You knew you were the younger son. You had squandered your whole life. And could you imagine what it did to your soul, what welled up in your eyes to hear that Jesus was saying, God would love to have you back. God would love to have you home. In fact, God would put a robe on your back and sandals on your feet and a ring on your hand and kill a calf and throw a party if you would come home. The tax collectors and the sinners knew exactly who they were in the story. But remember, back in verse 3, so he told them this parable. The so wasn't just because the tax collectors and sinners had drawn near them. The so was because the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. You see, Jesus told this parable because the Pharisees and the scribes were there, and as it turns out, Jesus wants to show them that there's actually more than one way to be lost. There's actually more than one way to be lost, to be separated from God. That is, you can be lost by being very, very bad, and you can be very, 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 very good and be totally lost. You can be separated from God by having a perfect resume to show him. You could have never missed church your whole life, done all that you were supposed to do. You have your resume typed out ready and neat, and you could be totally lost. You see, the tax collectors and the sinners, they knew who they were in the story. They're the younger brothers. So where are the Pharisees and the scribes? Well, cue the older brother. Because he's the second lost son who comes into the scene now. Verse 25. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come home. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I have never disobeyed your commandment, yet you never even gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him? 
And he said to him, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. The older brother, the good one, the moral one, the Bible-believing, respectable, decent, dignified, straight-laced, good one. He comes in and he sees the father eating with his younger brother and he gets angry. He grumbles. Does that sound familiar? Isn't that why this whole parable started? Because the Pharisees, the good guys, started grumbling that Jesus was eating with sinners. And so now it's the older brother in the parable. It's his turn to dishonor and disrespect his father. It's the older brother's turn to be lost. The older brother's turn to dishonor and disrespect his father. How? For one, the father is throwing a party where the entire community is invited. So that culture, that side of the world, you know what an older brother would do? The eldest son, he should be the host of this party. He should welcome guests as they come into his father's house to share in his father's banquet. He should be there hosting and greeting guests. And can you imagine the neighbors coming in one by one and seeing the older boy protesting outside? Surely one of the neighbors must have come and said, Jacob, why is your eldest boy outside? Why is he not inside? And so now it's the father's turn to take a second trip out to his sons. So he has to go out to both of them because they're both lost just in very different ways. And so the same way he ran to his younger boy, now he goes out to his older one and the text says he entreats him. That is, he pleads with him repeatedly. Pleads with him over and over and over again. And the boy responds. Every commentator I've read said the same thing. He doesn't respond by even giving any respect or honor to this father. He doesn't address him and say, esteemed father, dear dad. Instead, verse 29, essentially he says, look. And you can even read it as, look you. Look, you. I was thinking about it in the culture that I grew up in, in the language that I grew up speaking in, in, in the Indian language, Malayalam, there's not even a word for you when it's to your elders. You, you, don't, you can't even say you to your elders. You could say, dad, come here, but I could never say you come here, because that is the kind of respect you are to give to elders. In that culture, that side of the world, this boy looks at his father and he says, look, you. And then he presents his resume. Here's everything I have done, and here's the stuff I have not done, and you never even did this for me. And a resume, friends, is the telltale sign between self-righteousness and humble repentance. If you want to know the difference between humble repentance and self-righteousness, it's a resume. Because the self-righteous always have their resume ready. And it shows them what they've done and what they haven't done that allows them to be close to God and able to judge you. I can say this about you and what you deserve and who you are because here's the stuff I have not done and here's the stuff I have done. The repentant, they bank on God's goodness. The self-righteous bank on their own goodness. The repentant come and go, I hope and pray you are good. The self-righteous go, I know and believe I am good. And that's the difference. And the Pharisees and the scribes are out of step with God in every way in this parable. So much so the elder brother can't even 
refer to the younger one as his brother. He says what? When this son of yours came back, not when my brother came back, when this son of yours came back, you killed the fattened calf for him? You see, and Jesus is getting at what is the very scandal of the heart of the Christian message. The scandal of the Christian message is good things happening to bad people. That's Christianity. In fact, the entire Christian message is good things happen to bad people. In fact, it's only to bad people that good things happen. If you're not acknowledging that you're bad, nothing good can happen for you in the most ultimate sense. Only bad people get good things in the Christian gospel. And here's the scandal of all scandals. By the end of the story, the sinful, prodigal, younger brother who had slept with prostitutes is in the house with dad, while the boy who had never done anything wrong is out of the house, standing angry. There it is. By the end of the story, the younger one is in, and the older one is seen standing out. And you can imagine sitting there that day, tax collectors and sinners are in, and the Pharisees and the scribes are out. You can imagine this story didn't sit well with them. A pastor named Tim Keller, he's written this whole book on this called The Prodigal God, Worth Your Reading. And he drew out one point that I thought was very compelling. He said, if you notice these three parables, you'll see that there's a bunch of parallels throughout all of them, but there's one striking difference. He pointed out in the first two parables, there's a clear person who goes out and seeks. You remember that? There's a shepherd who goes and looks up the valleys and down in the, the valleys and up the mountains, who goes out and seeks. When the coin is lost, there's a woman who seeks diligently for it. But where's the person to go and look for the boy in the far country and find him in the pigsty? And who should have been doing that? And Keller points out it's, it's sort of one of the oldest stories in the Bible. You remember one of the first stories of the Bible was about two brothers, Cain and Abel, and the elder one does wrong to the younger. And when he does wrong, he comes to God and he says, am I my brother's keeper? And the implicit answer was supposed to be, yes, you are supposed to be. So who was supposed to go and look for this boy? Who was supposed to bear the cost of finding this boy? Listen, the elder brother, if he was a true brother, was supposed to go from his father's house, bear the cost and find him. And literally, say bear the cost is not hyperbole. It would cost the elder brother to find him. You know why? This boy has already squandered every bit of his inheritance. Now everything that's left literally is this elder brother's. The father wasn't joking when he said, all that is mine is yours. It's true. The younger brother has nothing left. If this boy's going to eat a fattened calf, it's his fattened calf now. If he's going to come back home, it's into his inheritance. If he's going to be written back into the will, he's eating into what he deserves now. Everything belongs to the elder brother. And the only way the younger brother comes in is if the elder brother will bear the cost of having him come in. And what elder brother is going to love a sibling enough to do that? Well, not this one. And yet the point of the entire Christian message is there is one elder brother who did that. Hebrews calls Jesus a brother to us. And the message of the Bible is what? There was one elder good brother who had never done anything wrong, who loved his father with all his might, who when he saw that his younger siblings had wandered away, he left his father's home and traveled a great far country to come. And at cost to himself, bearing the cost of bringing them back, 
at the sacrifice of his own inheritance, his own life, his own body, and his own blood, he bore the cost of bringing this younger one all the way home. This is the good news. This is the gospel. That through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God diligently seeks the lost and rejoices greatly when they are found. This Sevma Road and friends who are listening is what we want to bank our entire lives on. And this is what we want to bank our entire church on. So that if God gives us 10 years or 100 years, we would still be centered on the good news of Jesus Christ. That through the death and resurrection of Jesus, God seeks the lost and rejoices greatly when they are found. So let me end by saying this. If you're here and you're not a Christian, then the invitation that this passage has to you is come to your senses. Rise and go to Jesus. Arise and go to Jesus. And he will rejoice and embrace you and carry you on his shoulders and bring you home. This is the invitation to you. I remember uh, several years ago, I went with this team to an orphanage. We only had a week there to serve. And so we had all these little kids, and it was our job to love them and serve them for one week as sort of their teachers. So I remember on the first day while I was at this orphanage, all the kids after lunch during their recess would go outside and play tag. So they're running around. And I thought to myself, we're only here for a week. We've got to build some kind of relationship with them and, and befriend them. So I went out, and I started running and playing tag with them. And what I noticed was the kids started running, but they weren't playing tag anymore. They were literally just sprinting as far as they, they could away from me. I don't know if it was because I was foreign or bigger or uglier or whatever it was. They were scared to death, and they ran as fast as they could. But we had the course of a week. And so over a week, we were their teachers. They saw us all day and all night, and they came to see over the course of a week that we weren't there to harm them or hurt them, that we actually cared for them, that we actually loved them. So much so I can tell you by the end of the week, they love me more than anyone else. You can ask anyone on that team. And on the last day of that trip, I remember that it was lunchtime. And when it was done, they went out to play tag. And when we were about to leave, I went out to play tag. And they were all running. Except every last one of them, I tell you, were not sprinting away. Instead, they were fighting over who gets to be it and trying to catch me. This is the Christian gospel. For whatever reason you might have in your story, in your narrative, you may have run from God because he's foreign or scary, he's out to destroy your life, or you don't believe, or you got hurt by someone or something. And yet, maybe through this passage, you begin to see the true God is different. He's actually for you, incredibly for you. Enough to warm your heart and have you turn and chase the one who's been chasing you. That's what Luke 15 invites you to do. Run after the one who's been running after you. Pursue today the one who's been pursuing you. You don't have to run from God anymore. I can promise you the younger kid was not perfect from there on out. I can promise you the siren of temptations and the pigs and all of that probably still called out to him. And I can imagine Ecclesiastes 2 still felt good for him. And I imagine there were temptations. You don't have to be perfect overnight, but you can come to Jesus. And if you're here and you are a Christian, let me talk to you for a second, Seven Mile Road. Our question for us is, how much do we believe this gospel? And what parts of our own soul don't believe God is as good as this passage says he is? And moreover, not just individually, but for our community, 
As one pastor said, for the sake of time, I won't read you the quote, but he, he, he made the simple point. When Jesus was on earth, younger brothers flocked to him. And if our community is filled with only straight-laced, moral, respectable, decent people that have kept upright lives, then you wonder where is the difference between Jesus' ministry and ours? And are we the kind of community that so believes this gospel that younger brothers of every kind could feel safe here, accepted and loved here, have time here, and patience here, and be nursed here for a long time? Is that the kind of community that we are? And if we're not, how centered on the gospel are we? And so we should ask the Lord to make us that kind of community. And we should ask the Lord, how are we as elder brothers? Are we Pharisee scribe-like elder brothers or Jesus-like elder brothers? How much is our seeking? How's our mission? You see, this is why the word gospel births other words like community and mission. But we'll get to that next week. Let's pray together. God, we give you thanks that you have given us this, your word. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would cause each one of us to arise and go to Jesus wherever we are. Wherever we are, far or near, we would take one more step to him and find that that first step has a God who responds by running to us, embracing us, clothing us, kissing us, accepting us. We pray that we would feel that together today and that feeling that together would change the kind of people we are, community we are, and missionaries we are. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name.